Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Regardless of whether you're for single-payer health insurance, fee-for-service, a hybridized French system, or the Affordable Care Act, what's clear is that most of the health care system is broken, left behind from the modern world of technology and creative destruction, and far too expensive. Imagine going to a store to buy a drink. Instead of your latte, someone slides open a frosted glass window, you're given a cheap clipboard and a pen that seldom works to write out your order, told to fill out a form, and that your drink will be out within a half hour. And that's only if you can prove you have insurance or the cash to pay. It's a system that's broken and then increasingly places barriers to entry for those without knowledge or the poor without the financial resources to access it. But what about the doctors that work in such a system? How does it impact them, many of whom wanted to practice medicine and not social work? We're going to examine all of this today with my guest, Dr. Michael Stein. Dr. Michael Stein is a professor of health law, policy, and management at Boston University and the author of the new book, Broke, Patients Talk About Money with Their Doctor. Dr. Michael Stein, thanks so much for joining us. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. When we talk about the poor in particular and money with respect to medicine, it seems that there's two sides to the discussion. One in the ways in which money impacts how patients are going to be treated, but also the way in which poverty is a generator of illness and sickness. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, I'm a primary care doctor as well as a professor, and I've been working in the same town for the past 30 years, and I've gotten to know people relatively well uh, over that time. And they talk to me about all sorts of things. Obviously, they come in for medical complaints and, and acute problems, and they also come in for chronic problems, and they also come in just to talk sometimes. And so what they end up talking about often are the hardships of life, uh, and a push for those hardships is often not having enough money. So I hear a lot in my office about uh, money. And Broke, this book that I've written, is really a book of voices of people who don't have enough money and who and come in talking to me about alimony payments and funeral costs and utility bills and cars breaking down and uh, how those sometimes relate to their uh, symptoms and sometimes just how they live their lives and try to get by. When you became a doctor, went to medical school, and, and, and grew up in the medical profession, did you envision that you would be treating patients for their psychological issues as well, that, that issues like money and the need to talk would be as big a part of what you would have to do? Well, I think doctors in training make choices about uh, what they're drawn to do, and sometimes those choices are familial, that is, they've grown up in the home of a surgeon and they've always wanted to be a surgeon, and sometimes they come to it in their own private ways, what they were going to do. So I chose to be a general internist, which meant that I understood that I was taking on conversation as one of the things that I would do, that I would also, I would do use a stethoscope and I would do injections and I would see people in the hospital, but that much of healthcare, as you know, has to do with uh, symptoms that that are sometimes a purely psychological origin, or of course, in people with chronic disease, um, come from simply uh, living a life in in pain or 
and and how that and how that can affect one's psyche over time. So I absolutely enjoy the conversations. I consider it part of what I do. I consider it a therapeutic tool. How has the reality of medicine in the 21st century, the economics of medicine in the 21st century, impacted what it is that you like to do? At a time of shortened office visits and more pressure from insurance companies, how does that conflict with the reality of your interaction with your patients? Well, I mean, certainly uh, office managers who are responsible for keeping doctors on time, if uh, the doctors don't do it themselves, uh, are very aware of short office visits and throughput of patients. I've always believed, and I still believe to this point, that doctors can manage their time differently from the way they do that the doctors shouldn't feel obliged to do only 15 minute visits and stick completely on time. Um, now, if you do that, the next patient waiting for you has to wait a little bit longer and that's a problem. So there has to be some understanding of as a doctor goes through their day that um, a 15 minute visit is an average visit. So that if a person can be seen for a strep throat in seven minutes, well, that's eight minutes left out of the 15 minutes that can be applied to the next person who can have a 23-minute visit and so on. And so one has to uh, shape the day facing the needs of the patients that they see. Now, when you take care of poor people, as I generally do, it's a large part of my practice out of my personal interest, um, people who have low incomes, what you notice over time is that not only are they more ill because health follows wealth in America very clearly, but they also have certain characteristics of poverty that um, manifest in office visits. For instance, people who are poor in general are late for visits. They are often arrived late. They do not get there necessarily on time. And, And that can be for a lot of reasons. They're dependent on of the public transportation system. And this is obviously before COVID and made worse by COVID. Um, And that public transportation system may or may not work. They may be needing um, care for their children that may arrive late. And so I think doctors um, have a real misunderstanding if they believe that the lateness of a person to their office from time to time Um, has to do with um, that person's not caring for themselves and not respecting the doctor. Sometimes it's just a matter of life. And I think the doctors really, uh, particularly those in general medicine or even pediatrics, have to understand that and have to roll with that and adjust their office times to that. Is it your sense that the way the medical profession is moving with more and more online visits, more and more clinics available for, for more minor kinds of illness, that, that that will exacerbate some of the problems that you're seeing? You know, there's been a, a, certainly a rise in, in lots of parts of the country, not all parts of the country, usually urban places. Rural is a whole different conversation that we could have. Um, but ur- urban uh, centers have picked up these places, these minute clinics, these walk-in sites, um, these pharmacies that have providers sitting within the pharmacy. I think that's going to change the complexion of what people come to see doctors for, primary care doctors for over time. Um, And that's an ongoing issue. It's 
it's penetrated some markets. It hasn't penetrated other markets. I don't think that primary care doctors, of which there's still a short supply in most of the United States, um, uh, are going to go out of business from these from these uh, new kinds of, of office visits. I, I also think that telehealth, assuming that it stays around post-COVID, is going to affect care in a good way. And um, and I, so I do think that we're in a mutating system at this point, and primary care is going to remain at the center of it, I believe, for uh, the next decade. Talk about ways that you would like to see it mutate, things that you think would improve the system, particularly for the kind of patients that you treat. Yeah, I think from... from uh, from a policy standpoint, I think that we um, know what um, causes poor health. Um, and what causes poor health is, in this country, uh, other than bad luck, the greatest association is with poverty. Um, we have a unique rate of poverty, for instance, among children in the United States. One out of every six children lived in poverty in the United States before COVID, one out of six. That is um, astronomically higher than any of our peer countries. And, and it's shocking and it's disgraceful to me. And it's also a very clear choice. It's a clear choice that um, po- politicians make um, about people living in poverty in the United States. And um, it can be answered through policy. And the answer comes in certain very clear forms that have been um, tried in small ways, but not broadly. So, for instance, if we wanted to get children out of poverty and children are really the best target because they have long lives and because they carry the adults who are their parents along with them and everybody cares about children. So I'm going to talk about children for a second. If we gave every child's parents twenty seven hundred dollars per year for that child, it would cut American poverty for children by one-third. Boom, one-third. It's a small amount of money for people who are living in poverty. Um, It's a huge amount in terms of what it would have for health benefits. If we expanded Medicaid so that everybody had access to care in the United States, that's the simplest way to reach the poor in the United States, we would have a dramatically different uh, health system. And let me just say again that health is largely shaped by where you live and the conditions of your life. So if you live in the poorest county in America, which is in South Dakota, where the family income is $26,000 a year on median, that county has a life expectancy in South Dakota of 67 years old. A baby born today is expected to live to 67 years old. If you live in one of the richest counties in America, say a county in Virginia, where the median income is about $129,000, that baby born today has a life expectancy of 84 years. So between the poorest county and the richest county in the United States, that is 17 extra years of life for your baby born. So where would you want to live? And do you want to live in a country that has a 17-year year uh, <laughs> gap 
between the poorest and the richest. It's really, these are things that need to be corrected, should be corrected, we should pay attention to correcting them. Is part of the problem also the availability of medical care in many of those poor areas? When you talk about South Dakota, for example, there is a clear shortage of health care availability in so many of the poorer and rural areas of the country. Yes, there is absolutely a shortage of, of, um, of providers both primary care providers, certainly specialist providers, and going back to your earlier questions, certainly mental health providers um, in rural parts of the country. Now, mental health provision of care might in fact be answered by uh, some changes in telehealth and allowing uh, providers to work across state lines so that I in Boston could see that person in South Dakota if they needed to be seen. So there's some relatively simple technological answers. Now, how to get doctors to work in rural counties is a very difficult question that uh, needs to be answered and is a continuing problem. Now, rural hospitals are also closing, and COVID's not going to help with that either. There's great financial strain. There are hundreds of hospitals closing um, in the United States over uh, this this uh, year, and it's going to get worse. So. Rural populations are uh, in trouble. What do you see as a potential solution to that in terms of getting doctors to be motivated to serve rural communities? I think um, the, the motivation for, for many people um, is financial. And I think that, um, you know, just as we need to uh, pay teachers more to get them to work in certain parts of the country, um, if you want teachers to move there, um, that's one avenue in. So there has been uh, uh, some push by the public health service over the years to get doctors to work in rural counties and rural areas, and it's been somewhat successful, not completely successful. Other, other avenues would be to train people who are local. And so, you know, many places will uh, train people who come from their states expecting that people will return to their communities. So I think those are the two best avenues, but we know that dollars and cents are a great uh, lever in the United States. And, and one of the ways to use that lever for people in medical training where the expenses of going to school are quite high is to give debt relief to medical students to move for small numbers of years, at least into uh, places that need more providers, and uh, that could work and probably needs to be jacked up even more in order to have it work better. In medicine in general, but particularly with respect to, to the poor, as we've been talking about, how important is a personal relationship with a doctor as opposed to a more impersonal clinical relationship? Yeah, I think the the personal relationship with doctors is is um, absolutely critical. It is what makes people come back to care. It is a way to make the poor um, feel less ashamed, uh, less worthless, less invisible than they often feel and are treated in medical settings. And by knowing a doctor well. And having a relationship with somebody whom you trust, uh, I think that we can 
um, make people both sort of uh, psychologically improve, feel more accountable, uh, feel that they have a place to turn to if if they need help, and um, uh, have somebody who who understands that um, that poverty is more than uh, the hardship of not having uh, enough toys or books in your house or um, money. It's really a feeling that poverty is 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 a, is a sensation like pain that inhabits a person and that affects their entire lives and much of their decision making. And I think that the that people with low incomes who can find doctors who will speak to them will then have a resource who that will um, anticipate what problems might arise, who would affirm and empower them to uh, make clearer decisions, to advise them about what services might be available in, ter- in their community in terms of food, clothing, shelter, utility, bill relief, social services, and will attend to um, their uh, medical issues as well, but understanding that those medical issues are influenced by their conditions of life. Do you have a concern that if medical care became more affordable, more accessible for the poor through some kind of a, a Medicare for all or single payer system or whatever it might be, that it would in turn make the system more bureaucratic and less personal and and really go counter to this idea of the personal relationship with the doctor that can spend maybe a little more than 15 minutes? No, I, I don't. I don't think accessible care makes makes the doctor relation patient relationship um, change. I, I, I really don't. I, I think that that if we simplified uh, the way that patients can get to care, um, and the, the doctors would be fine with that. Um, I, I think that that's. That's the issue. Is that is that there's barriers for people at this point to getting services, and that there aren't enough services, as we've talked about in rural and certain other places. Um, now, if you if you had universal health care in the United States, which seems to me, uh, you know, a basic human right in most parts of the world, um, having health care it does increase the need for medical services. What we know is that in states where Medicaid is expanded and, um, you know, the 20 million Americans who've come on to medical care since Obamacare was passed a decade ago, we know that medical services go up. So you need to be able to absorb those patients into a system. Now, once you've absorbed those patients into the system, the provision of care, the relationship of patient to doctor, I don't think will be will be uh, broken by by a system that is more universal and welcoming. Do you find what do you find amongst your students? You're also a professor in terms of students today going into the medical profession. Well, I've, students have changed in my. Uh, 30 years of practice, right? I mean, what you have now is half or more of every medical class is female, wonderful. 
um, an increasing uh, part of the medical uh, student body are people of color, um, often coming from neighborhoods and areas that require um, services. And it will be wonderful if some of those folks return to uh, communities that, that they came from, if that's what they choose to do. And I think that's part of the, the thinking. Um, uh, I think that obviously we have um, a generation that's grown up that's much more technological and understands the sort of reach of technology and how to use that. I think we've grown up with a population of um, young medical students who are aware of the access issues to care and are, and um, I think that that's a wonderful thing. They think a bit more about money and poverty and the social drivers of health that we've been talking about today. So I think that that's a wonderful change. I think the training has been um, more attentive to those issues. So I think that's good. And, and I still think that there's much more room to go. And I do think we should be training more primary care doctors. I think there should be greater attention to um, poverty and the social drivers of care and making students aware of that. Um, and I do think that we need to change our reimbursement system so that uh, primary care is reimbursed um, better than it has been in the past compared to specialty medicine, which still to my mind is uh, overpaid. I mean, the, the problem of American medicine is really a problem of pricing. It's not a problem of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of other dimensions that we, we know about. It's, it's a matter of access for patients and, and overpricing for those patients who get into care. What do you hear from your patients in terms of the issues that they bring to you, the things they talk about with respect to how they feel about medical care and their doctors, et cetera? Um, well, I, I might not be the best person to ask that, that question of, um, you know, I, I think that many of the patients feel that, um, when they, when they talk to other doctors and then come back to me and tattletale on those mm -hmm. other right. occasions, they, um, you know, they talk about being, um, stigmatized as being, uh, poor. I think that that's, there's that feeling. I think they often feel rushed. Um, they feel rushed while at the same time, as you noted in your introduction, they're asked to wait. You don't wait 30 minutes for your cup of coffee, but you could wait hours for providers to come and see you. I think that they feel that the system doesn't work particularly smoothly, but that's almost unfortunately sort of built in at this point. What, what they, what they don't um, want is to be disrespected and made to feel ashamed. Um, and obviously they want competence, right? So the first thing they all, all want is to have somebody who is competent in, in dealing with their problem. But um, if the problem is obscure or is chronic or is nonspecific, they want um, attention and they want somebody who listens to them respectfully. So I think people want to be heard is the primary matter for most patients. And that is often difficult in a rushed visit. How does your relationship with your patients evolve so that they are willing to talk to you about these kind of personal issues like money or things related to it? So, you know, 
people talk to you over time, right? I, I don't bring up money and nor does any patient that I've ever met bring up money on a first visit or a second visit. They really need to get to know you. Now, doctors could anticipate this a little bit better, right? So, I mean, I train my um, young physicians to, to ask a very simple question, you know, at some point relatively early on in the relationship with a patient who they're going to continue to see, that is not in an emergency room or not in an urgent visit, but somebody who they've had some time to, to, to sit with is a very simple question is, do you ever have trouble making ends meet at the end of the month? So that's just a very open-ended question that some people will say, yeah, I do. I have trouble paying this or that bill. Um, and then that opens uh, the way into a conversation. Some people say, absolutely, no, I have no problems making ends meet. Some people will, may not tell you the truth the first time out of embarrassment. Um, so occasionally it would be worth asking that again. Um, so I do think that that's one thing that's important. The other thing that I believe is important is, is just keeping in mind this idea of what poverty, what not having enough money is doing to this person in front of you um, at that moment? What are the contextual factors that are distorting some of their choices and actions? And those actions can be purely medical, such as you've given them a week's worth of antibiotics and they come back a week later and their pneumonia is better. And you look into this a bit and then they say, well, I never took the antibiotics because you gave me one that was too expensive, so I didn't take it. So sometimes there's a very direct line between um, bad outcomes and um, non-preparatory conversations that lead to those bad outcomes for people who don't have uh, a lot of money. So it's just keeping in mind what are the factors that are going to distort their choices and actions. Do you find that most internists, general practitioners, doctors that, that do what you do, have this kind of relationship with their patients, or is yours unique in some respects? No, I don't. I don't think mine is unique. I know lots of people who have these. I think if you're if you're um, rushing through patients, you are going to, as a provider, as practitioner, physician's assistant, physician. If you're rushing through patients day after day, and not absorbing these personal moments and spending a minute with them, I think you're much more likely to burn out. I think that um, it's these human moments of interaction that allow people to remain um, open and curious and thoughtful and not act reflexively in the medical office. And I think many providers understand that about themselves over time. And those who don't understand that and are trying to rush through as many patients as they possibly can in a day are going to feel uh, broken, to use the title of my book, book. Um, they're going to feel that they've missed something. They're going to feel stressed, and they're going to not understand why, um, why they've lost the um, calling of this profession, which is you know, so meaningful to so many people. So I I am not alone in my um, relations with with patients, and I have to say, you know, I'm not I'm, I don't have a perfect relationship with 
every one of my patients. There are plenty of patients I don't talk about money with. There are plenty of patients I have clipped relationships with. There are patients who walked away from me because, you know, perhaps we're not a good match. So I think that all of those things have to be built in as well, that, um, you know, sometimes we disappoint our patients for reasons that we don't understand, and we may never understand, but I do think we need to do our best to be open-hearted and hopeful and respectful and um, curious. That's our job as internists. Dr. Michael Stein, his book is Broke, Patients Talk About Money with Their Doctor. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks very much for having me. It's been, uh, it's been a great honor. Thank you.